Hi, everybody. It is David Fitch speaking to you from Northern Seminary in Chicago on, a, I think it's a Wednesday night. Uh, I'm a professor here at Northern where I'm sitting. This is the conference room. And I also pastor a church along with a couple other pastors uh, in Westmont, about five miles over my shoulder. Anyways, it's really good to be with you here uh, with Telos Collective once again. I think it's been a year, year and a half since we met, uh, and yet uh, it sure seems like a lifetime. So much has happened in that last year, year and a half, not the least of which is COVID-19. Um, COVID-19 has disrupted our lives. Many of us have not been able to have Sunday morning gatherings like we're used to. Uh, church as an organizing task for pastors and leaders has been totally disrupted. And so for many of us, everything we build our lives around, our sense of accomplishment, everything we're used to doing has been totally disrupted. It's been strange times. Add on to this, and, and it's just so uh, stunning across the country, really across the world in every major city, the sins and evils of our culture have erupted. The ugly manifestations of racism via police shootings of black persons, you know, has been plastered across the screens of the world. And our culture is boiling over with hate and outrage and so much struggle and pain and injustice in the world. So much tension you know don't you don't you feel it when you walk out the front door don't you feel it when you meet a neighbor if you're a white person don't you feel it and have such com such compassion and concern for persons of color in our neighborhoods and if you're a person of color don't you feel uh aren't you struggling for uh a sense of anger and in injustice of it all and when are things going to change and and here we are in the midst of all this um, we're firmly stuck in a divided culture and and it just seems like things are getting worse and in the midst of all this we're talking about missional leadership uh, could it be any more uh, important how to lead church into mission, missional leadership, how to lead church into the challenge, the struggle, the pains, the hurts, the injustices, the mission of what God wants to do in the world. Um, leading a church into mission uh, is not retreat, but it's actually uh, presence amongst the challenges you know, believing that Jesus is at work in those challenges. Leading a church in a mission is not like defensiveness, you know, putting up your dukes, uh, building a wall of defense. No, it's engagement. It's entering in to the lost and the hurting places of our culture. It's not consolidation and protection of our church communities. Uh there will be people we need to protect. There will be people we need to watch over. But there's a sense that we are being called to extend and expand 
the church of Jesus Christ into the places of hurt where God is working, calling people to himself, healing the nations. This is what I want to talk about tonight in the subject heading, missional leadership. I believe we need a shift of approach and we need a, a shift of, of uh, mindset, uh, yeah, a shift of posture if we're going to do this kind of leadership. One of the first questions I ask when, when I talk about the subject is uh, the issue, the cultural condition of Christendom versus post-Christendom. This is especially important for the church to figure out. I know those words, Christendom, post-Christendom, are overused words, maybe ad nauseum. So give me just a chance to tell you in a few minutes why I think they're important and maybe the first question of diagnosis we should all be asking if we're going to be leaders of mission. Um, mission missional, or, or Christendom, post-Christendom, asks the question, are we living where the church already has cultural influence? Or are we living in a world where the church is a marginal institution at best with little influence? A lot of cultural influence, little influence, or indeed no influence, or maybe even resentment. Is there a cultural resentment towards the church? Christendom, we have a lot of influence in the church. The culture is Christian. Actually, mission is not really foremost on our minds. We just, maybe we don't know it, but we assume the culture is Christian. And if Christians want to be Christian, they'll come to church. I mean, if people want to be Christians, they'll come to church. Post-Christendom assumes the world is not Christian. Uh, we cannot assume the world is Christian. And actually, mission rises to the forefront. So Christ Christendom defines the culture where the church has influence. Even cultural alignments with what I'll call worldly power, alignments with, say, government. We all remember the days when Billy Graham went to President Richard Nixon. Actually, most of us don't remember this. And actually, I was very young when this happened. Uh, so I don't remember it. But I've read about it. Uh, when Billy Graham went to visit Richard Nixon as President of the United States, to have influence and to use that influence for Christian purposes. Um, but, but Christendom, ten, the church tends to use influence, government, institutions of power, corporations, money. Our temptation is, it's there, let us use this influence. I am of the theological conviction that the church should not rely on worldly power to do what God would do, to do what God chooses to do, to redeem and heal and restore the world. Relying on worldly power is a Christendom habit, uh, whether it be intellectual capital or intellectual power we have in the society or government power or money. I know some, some of you are disagreeing with me even now as I speak. We can talk about it. There's a Q&A right after this. But I, I suggest it always gets us into trouble. Worldly power. And so mission demands a different way of engaging the world than we are used to in Christendom. And I think a lot of churches are still 
whether they know it or not, they, it's, it's, it's not even intentional. But we keep, we're stuck on Christendom habits of leading, organizing, shaping church. So I want to talk about three things that need to change in how we lead. The first thing, number one, is power. How we think about and exercise power has to change if we are going to be leaders who lead churches into mission. Um, I define, well, James Davison Hunter in To Change the World, that very popular book, popular academically at least, uh, uh, defines power as power over someone or something. It's the ability to control resources or exert influence over someone or some institution. Um, he uses the word asymmetrical. Power is asymmetrical. One person has more of it than another person. That's what makes power. Um, and so power is this thing that James Davison Hunter, Reinhold Niebuhr, some other names which I won't go into, pretty much assume that's the way the world runs. Worldly power, I call it. If you look at leadership in the last 30, 40 years and the way it's been talked about in evangelical church, um, like, like Willow Creek leadership, Global Leadership Summit, which was the main driver of leadership studies for the last 30 years, an influencer in leadership in, in evangelical church. Their goal was to show how to be efficiently efficient users of power. As a matter of fact, they brought people in from outside the church. Bill Clinton, famously president, came. Um, uh, there's leadership gurus from secular universities who had no uh, commitment to Christ. Didn't matter. Power is power. And we need to learn how to use it for Christian purposes. But still, even all uh, with all of this, I want to say, in my opinion, wor worldly power is not the way. Is the church should not use it. Uh, the church should, because we know who Jesus is, because we worship Jesus as Lord, because we can recognize Him at work, we should choose to participate with Him in the way He works. And the way his power works is different than worldly power. With worldly power, leaders um, assume, it is assumed that leaders can sightline down the course of history and see the future almost like magically, supernaturally. Sounds a little bit like God. But no, we are leaders who follow God. We are leaders who follow Jesus. And he's the one who's Lord of the world. He's the one who knows the future. We are participating with him and what he is doing. I do not believe worldly power is the way God works when he chooses to work to redeem the world. There, he can use worldly power uh, in his sovereignty to get things done. The example is Cyrus, uh, who was used of God to return Israel, to turn the na nation of Israel to Jerusalem and, and rebuild the temple. But, the, but presence is the way God works to redeem the world, restore the world, heal the world. Presence is the way God works. And it's not just personal, his personal presence. 
a personal, pious, individual experience of his presence. No, his presence is at work among people, in social situations, in that town hall meeting where they're discussing uh, anti-racism, in uh, the school systems where the teachers and administrators are trying to do their best to flourish children in their lives, and, and in our churches, the presence of God is at work in amazing ways. But I believe that, by and large, American church uh, has ignored it, has uh, not made space for God's presence. We're so used to being in Christendom. Um, presence, God's presence, presence is the way God works. Those themes are throughout the entire Bible, from really Genesis 1, Garden of Eden, all the way to the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem, and Revelation 21. Um, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite places to understand God's presence, I mean, it's everywhere in, in the Bible, but Psalm 46 is, is one of my favorites. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read parts of it. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. He is present. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. He dwells among us. He dwells where we gather as the people of God. He dwells, manifests his presence. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her. When morning dawns, the nations make an uproar and kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The power of his presence. Those are metaphors about the earth melting, but they are metaphors that describe just how powerful God's presence is when we allow him space to work. He makes wars to cease. He makes wars to cease by his presence. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Again, we're talking metaphors here about how God's presence is so powerful. I mean, cease, then it says, cease striving. Cease striving to do it on your own, in your own effort, under your own worldly power. And know, recognize, be present to the reality that I am God. I am working. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Uh, you know, notice all these words of presence. With, in the midst, present, dwelling. It's everywhere in this psalm. But notice also how powerful God's presence is and how God wants to work in ways that transform. Um, there's a guy. So, so, so leaders, we need to give up worldly power, exertion, power over, coercion. And we need to allow God's presence to work in our midst and us be 
the cooperators, the, the facilitators, the people who make space for God to work and then witness and join in and gather people around God's presence. Um, Edwin Friedman has a book, uh, Failure of Nerve. Uh, I, I know you all, I've heard in Telos Collective him mentioned, uh, and uh, he has this excellent idea of unanxious presence. Uh, but Friedman didn't have Psalm 46. I, actually, he probably did, but he didn't have a theology of God's presence at the center of this concept of unanxious presence. And, and so, um, you know, it's more about one's self-awareness, one's grounding in one's own self-confidence, um, sufficient not to get caught up in the swirl and the striving. There's a lot of overtones to scriptural understanding of God's presence. But the concept of leadership, uh, it, uh, the unanxious presence can become, apart from God, can become just another technique to exert power over somebody or something or some institution. The concept of leadership, I believe, in the New Testament goes beyond Edwin Friedman to say that we not only must become present <clears throat> to the situation at hand, be calm, we must become present to God's presence <clears throat> at work in this place, in this space. Each situation, each conflict, each moment of discernment, we must be leaders who discern his presence in the knowledge <clears throat> and confidence and trust that God is at work. <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. By inviting the presence of God in our midst as we engage each leadership situation, each leadership moment, we are able to say, Lord, be present in this place. Help me see what you're doing in this. Help me see what you're doing in the other person. Help me uh, recognize what you're doing. Help me understand how scripture, what scripture means in this situation. I, uh, I, uh, Acts chapter 15, you know, uh, the apostles had one of those times of leadership when they, and, and they looked at, they're discerning whether and on one conditions Gentiles could be, uh, 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 initiated into the kingdom, accepted, welcomed into the kingdom. And some Jewish people were upset that they weren't doing A, B, C, and D. You know the whole story. Anyways, I just want to say, uh, they prayed. They discerned his presence. They read the scriptures. Uh, they also discerned what the Spirit was doing in their little episodes with Gentiles. And they came to that moment in Acts chapter 15. Uh, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit. It seems good to us together. Not me as a coercive leader, but us as we have discerned together the presence of the Holy Spirit that this is what God's calling us to do. I believe we got to have the we got to lead those kind of moments in our church in times like these. Uh, I'll call it it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit moments. We need it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit moments in our churches. Um, I think missional leadership demands that we lead in Acts chapter 15 ways. It seems good to us in the Holy Spirit moments. Uh, recently uh, someone was upset at our church uh, about uh, bubbles. Uh, bubbles, these, these small groups of people that commit to uh, masks and safe distancing 
and so forth. And um, uh, uh, all this to say, uh, we have decided to meet and gather and, uh, and discern, and then we're going to write uh, three to four paragraphs as to what we have discerned. It seems good to us in the Holy Spirit that we do this. And then we're going to submit it to the congregation. Congregation, those who are uh, interested in the issue are going to respond or not respond if they're fine with it. And then we're going to post it on our on our website. And I believe it's good to post these discernments. It gives direction uh, into these. And we're in the middle of racial divisions and divides. We're in the middle of injustices. We're in the middle of sexuality debates. We're in the middle of politics debates. We're in the middle of, of all the you know, e socioeconomics, things that are happening in our towns. Can we lead our congregations into it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit moments? Um, we had, it may take more than one evening, by the way. We had one issue about four years ago where it took us seven meetings, three to four hours each, until we arrive together at it. It seems good to us in the Holy Spirit moment. Submitted it to the congregation. And amazing things happen out of the direction that provided our church further into mission. Um, I also want to say something about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit just teach us about how God's presence works in the church. You know, in the history of New Testament scholarship, there was this debate. Uh, Rudolf Boltman came up with this idea called early Catholicism hypothesis. He said the early church was founded by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but as it grew older and matured, it turned into offices in the pastoral epistles. I don't buy that. Uh, neither did a lot of post-Boltmanians. Post um, but we do got to realize that um, there are offices for the purpose of, you know, pastors as the current in, in my denomination, maybe priest or bishop is in your denomination. Uh, we have offices, but anywhere in the New Testament, I believe, the gift preceded the office. And when we separate the office from the gift, it turns into hierarchical uh, power over or can become, can become worldly power. We always want the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be the way we exert authority in the church. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it is, the Jesus, the Lord uh, ascends in that, I believe it's verse 6 or 7, and then he gives gifts, the fivefold gifting. And in the gifts, it says, uh, exercised according to the grace meted out, I believe that's verse 7. Same thing in Romans 12, 6. According, exercise the gift according to the grace or faith of the person exercising the gift. Um, what that says is we have to depend on the Holy Spirit, depend on the Lordship of Christ who gives us these gifts in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's his authority. We depend on him and trust on him to exercise that gift, and we always stay within the boundaries of our gift. We do it mutually. No one is over somebody else. The gifts of the Holy Spirit have to be the foundation of leadership. And it says that we depend on the Holy Spirit. 
I don't know about you, but whenever we go into tough situations or whenever we preach or whenever we evangelize, whenever, are we saying, Lord, be present in me and my gift. Be Lord here as I uh, speak or as I minister or as I pray or as I pray the gift of healing on somebody. I believe it's very important that the office does not get separated from the gift. All that to say, I think we need a new conception of power if we're going to be missional leaders. Not worldly power, but the power of the presence of God at work in and through and among us. I think I said sometime on Facebook this past week that there's a temptation uh, of pastors to work hard and do it all in their own effort. And when the church grows, they think, ah, I did this. I did this. And when they start saying, I did this, then they think the church becomes theirs to do with what they want. Haven't we seen that in the last year since we met in several tragic situations of Christian leadership? Uh, the second thing I want to say here, uh, so the first one is about power and the presence of God that it is by his presence that God is going to work in, in, in leaders to extend his mission, not only in the church, but in the world. Uh, the second idea I want to talk about is dispersion. Disperse the power. Don't centralize. Disperse the power. When we make, uh, the, uh, when we make the shift from worldly power to presence, automatically we see that God's presence is at work, not just here in me, not just here at work in the church, but he's all in all. Yes, the fullness, Ephesians, Ephesians 1, uh, the end of Ephesians 1 says, the fullness of all in all. He is present over all the world, all in all, but his fullness is manifest in the church. That means he's still at work in the world. And so we have to be out there discerning his presence out there, and we have to disperse leadership. Our leadership, we should not organize to centralize authority in and up to the boss, the one at the top. Because what that does is that limits the vision of the church, and that limits response to the needs. We need to push power down, and out and empower people through the gifts of the Holy Spirit to work out there. We need to we need to tell people you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the presence of God is at work in you, through you, and around you. And we need to teach them how to use their gifts in the various places of ministry. And this includes, like for us, a place where homeless people are, um, a, uh, a common closet. Uh, where people come and intersect to share clothing. Um, we have a happy hour that meets in one of the um, uh, one of the uh, apartment buildings, a lower uh, income apartment building. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, we have ministries going on in our schools. We have ministries going on with safe families, uh, with with mothers, single mothers of babies who are in need and uh, many other places. And we need to empower those people to both see the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about all the gifts. I'm talking about apostleship. I'm talking about pastoring. We need pastors out there, frankly. We got too many in here. We need them out there. Uh, can we central, can we push 
down leadership and push it out. You know, uh, I have here somewhere, I don't know if I brought it here, but I have a chart of all the places in the book of Acts and actually the Pauline epistles where the church is located in a house or where the words house to house uh, are, are written. And we know Acts 2.46, they met in the temple, but then they met in house to house, from house to house. And um, I think the question is, I mean, house to house was, was part of the way the church lived in the New Testament. And I'm not saying central gatherings are not important, but at this time in COVID-19, I think we got to find a way to uh, take advantage of the disruption and plant seeds, seed the revolution or remnant, whichever word, whichever R word you like better. I like revolution. The Bible uses the word remnant. This small group of people that God is going to use to renew Israel and give witness to the world, seed the remnant from house to house. It's in all those nitty-gritty, wonderful relationships where God's presence will work from house to house. All those little cups of coffee, those phone calls you make, encouraging people, loving people, telling them you're praying for them, engaging their hurts and pains, just by listening. Can we do the little nitty-gritty planting of seeds uh, during COVID-19 to seed the revolution? Um, uh, in our church, uh, it's, it's been a struggle during COVID to locate our places. We, we have these places I just mentioned, but I know the bar I go to regularly to minister and be present to what God's doing among lost people and broken people. Uh, I can't go there because it's full of, you know, it, it's, it's a COVID, you know, Petri dish. At least that's, okay, I'm scared and whatever. All this to say, there's there's challenges to relationality and engaging in these places uh, of lostness. So we've got to plant seeds, and we've got to keep it local, and we've got to keep it small. But COVID will end sometime, I believe. I mean, I don't know when, but it will come to an end. And I believe we can look back at all the little phone calls we made, all the little groups we started, um, all the little relational gatherings we put together of twos and threes and fours. Some of our church uh, gatherings are 10 or less. And we'll see that God was seeding something special. But for all of us in the ministry who are leading churches, this is the tough work of COVID-19, dispersing leadership into the neighborhoods. And the last thing I want to say, and, and I'm, I'm basically out of time, is uh, that we have to, we have to, move towards leading in mutuality mutuality coercion is power over right one person over another you remember though and i'll just you know kind of close with this thought that jesus said in mark chapter 10 uh, the disciples had said something like like they were always saying uh, when do we get a shot at calling the shots? Uh, who gets to sit on the right hand? Who gets to sit on the left hand and tell people what to do? That's what we're really interested in. You thought we were interested in following you. No, we want the power. That's what they were saying. Anyways, uh, Jesus says, oh, you idiots. Verse 42. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize 
as their rulers lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants who lord it over them. But it shall not be so among, among you. For whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. The principle there is we rule. Uh, we, uh, God works in mutuality. Just like I was talking about the gifts earlier. He works in this way um, because the church, if, if we too often... The, the church leads by one person at the top setting the agenda, telling people what to do, giving the vision and the imagination for the church. And it's supposed to go from top down. This worked in Christendom rather efficiently. Why? Because people were baptized very young and they were told who the boss is and, and no one questioned it until, you know, the 60s. Um, and then, and then, a lot of other stuff started to happen. I, I, I can't take time to go into it right now. But no, um, um, that the way to coalesce a vision around a church is to gather people and listen to their voices and hear what they're saying and dialogue. In fact, every decision should take this way. Uh, so we're sitting around and we have six people on our leadership team, three women and three men. Um, and then, and then we have an elder group, which is approximately, I think, 12 people in total. But um, among the pastors group, we might have a decision to make. Should we reach out to that group over there? Should we offer funds? And should we put, how do we push people to locate their circle of lost uh, presence among lost people and broken situations in our town? And, and someone will make a proposal. Someone, if the pat. We all know what our gifts are. Somebody makes a proposal, and then they say these magic words, I submit to you. And then we talk about the proposal. And we talk about, well, I like the proposal A, but A could be helped with a little B. And then someone else might say, A and B go together, except that it ignores C. So can we have a little C? At the end of the discussion, we have a proposal, which has been jointly coalesced by six people that takes into account all the various issues and gifts. And then we present it to the church and we ask them for their words. It may sound like uh, congregationalism, uh, but it is actually a work of the spirit. I believe, and this is something for you, for all my brothers and sisters in Anglican world to, uh, you know, sort out. But I believe the, the, the church is not an aristocracy. It is not top down. Um, a dictate from the top down. And I don't believe it's a democracy where everybody gets a vote and we decide 51% votes this way, 49%. 51% wins. No, that's not the kingdom. The kingdom is a pneumatocracy where the authority is made um, evident in the, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And out of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the voices are heard. And then it comes to a moment where the leaders say, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit. This is the mind of Christ. And we go forward. And this leads us out into mission. Folks, uh, I'll just close with this. I think COVID-19 has been 
the occasion for the disruption of old habits of leadership that centralized gatherings, that central, uh, not that I'm, I'm not against centralized gatherings, that centralized leadership and push everything in and up. God's calling us to send the people out, not to build programs in here, but to build presence out there. I believe God's raising a remnant uh, to show forth to the rest of the world what true leadership looks like that is inclusive but yet powerful, where the gifts of the Holy Spirit are differentiated and the voices are heard. And I believe we give up worldly power. We never exert coercion or violence. Instead, by His presence, God breaks through and works mighty things. We'll always be able to get things done through coercion, human effort. But when we make space a little more patiently for the work of the Holy Spirit, kingdom will break out and the gospel shall be proclaimed and people will get saved. Let us be paid. Let us, during this time of COVID and during this time of sorting out leadership, let us be faithful to the little details, the phone calls, the little group meetings, calling people to seed the revolution. Let us be patient. It's going to take a while. This is the way God works. He's patient. He's forbearing. He waits. He just keeps waiting. Can we be patient? And let us persevere. May God bless Telos Collective, all uh, the church for the sake of the other church for the sake of others, all the people that work in the Anglican Church North America and beyond. May we may a new outbreaking of the Holy Spirit, a new vibrant mission go forth all because of COVID-19. Lord bless you. Look forward to Q&A. All right. Thank you, JR. Do we still have Dave? I can't see his face right this minute, but Dave, there just he say hello. He's there. All right. So uh, Dave, this really isn't a question as much as it is. I want to bring into public something you and I have talked about in private, both sort of anticipating this meeting, but we've also just talked about it. I mean, not that it's a secret, but we've just talked about it outside of this meeting uh, many times before. And that is that Anglicans, particularly Anglicans, but anybody in the great tradition who sees the Episcopacy as core to church could not so much hear you and, and disagree, um, but hear you and wonder, how does this work when you know you have a bishop? And kind of by definition, the bishop has all the ecclesial power. So I just want to say a couple things and then really just get you to react to it. So yes, I am a bishop now. And yes, that does give me a lot of formal ecclesial power. Like for instance, I'm the only one that can excommunicate. I'm the only one who can ordain. Um, you know, all the big decisions, you know, they end with me, et cetera, et cetera. But I think you would agree with this, David, that um, power can be misused in any ecclesial setting. It can be misused amongst uh, a, a Presbytery and a Presbyterian system. It could be misused in a, in a congregational setting. Um, you know, power gets tweaked and misused all over the place. In fact, I don't know if I've said this to you, David, but it just dawned on me. There's sort of an irony here is that I actually think in terms of social psychology, 
In other words, not proper ecclesiology. But in terms of social psychology, I think I actually had more power, more raw power as the president of vineyard churches. And again, that's sort of a charismatic thing, you know, that I was the handpicked successor to this famous um, founder. And that accrued to me a lot of a certain sort of power, different than formal Episcopal power. But in terms of social psychology, actually, when I think back on it, I think I had even more power. So, David, I think the issue is this, that, you know, core to uh, an Anglican ecclesiology is bishops in apostolic succession that in some important sense, bishops constitute the church. And so, you know, there's this saying, no bishop, no church. Uh, you can't have church um, without a bishop. So I think probably Anglicans just want to hear you talk about it. I would say to just sort of get you going that <clears throat> anybody who knows me for very long or very well in fact, somebody just said to me this week, you know, you always say you want colleagues, and then I don't remember what they said. Um, but I've constantly said that, yes, I want to do ministry with colleagues. And yes, I, though I am a bishop, and though I have this sort of ecclesial power, I do want to do it in sort of in some way that is um, highly mutual. And, um, and I think David discerns um, what's the what's the best way to be a leader in this moment? So, you know, I wrote a book on servant leadership. So as you can imagine, I'm, I'm tracking with you in terms of power, but there feels like sometimes my mind is important. Like, let's say I'm helping a pastor with a, a, a really tough vocational setting. And there's just two of us trying to discern the spirit. Well, in that setting, it feels like my mind feels Im important in a different way than it might be if I was meeting with the bishop's council or our deans or our executive leadership team and trying to work out something together. So sorry, that was longer than I meant it to be. But I mean, just react to all that for those of us who are Anglicans and might be wondering how the heck can this work in a, in a setting um, in which the episcopacy is core. Well, there's a lot going on there, Todd. Uh, the first thing I like to say is like, I take no responsibility to uh, help you Anglicans figure this problem out. <laughs> Thank second you, David. Thing is, second thing is though, here's a few comments that I submit to you on. Uh, I've watched the Pope, uh, one of the most, uh, biggest symbol of church hierarchy in the world take off his vestments, refuse to live in the uh, that uh, nice lofty uh, apartment that he has there in the Vatican, uh, go and actually live and be among the poor and refuse in a lot of ways uh, to exercise what had become ensconced in that office uh, hierarchical power. I think there's ways uh, to do that. Uh, and use the episcopacy for the kingdom of God. But I think you, you do at this time need to figure that out because I think uh, in times of Christendom, it worked, it worked quite well. Actually, it worked very, very well for about 400 years, you know, and so, uh, but, but now things are different and you've got to adapt, you, or not adapt, you, you, you've got to basically realize 
that that you can't ever separate the office from the the gift and 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 so so that's that's the first place i would go yeah well by the way i agree with apostolic succession i don't think there's a church without the passing of the baton and the faithfulness of what's gone on before extending into the future. But you know, in 1 Corinthians uh, 4.12, it's the first gifts, uh, first apostles, then prophets, then evangelists or teachers. I can't even remember which ones, but there's first gifts, but they're not higher, they're not above, they set things into motion. That's the way I'd like to look at the way apostolic succession works. It's chronology, it's not hierarchy. Yeah. Well, maybe I uh, am guilty of trying to get you to say something I should just say myself, <laughs> um, but it, that I think you and I have talked about. Uh, so I just want to say, as somebody who's been a working bishop now for uh, 11 years, that there is nothing in the construal of Anglican Episcopacy that in any way, like definitionally rules out what you're saying. There's nothing inherent in the Episcopacy that works against the sharing of power if, if you want to do it. Um, I can share my power anytime I want. Now, again, my hands are tied on a couple of things. Like I, I can't ask a priest to ordain somebody for me, but you're not talking about that kind of stuff. You're talking about the day in and day out woof and warp of a, of a local community. And then I would say that that same thing is true for a rector. There's, there's nothing in our theology of what it means to be a rector or our ecclesiology, our canons. There's nothing in our canons about what it means to be a rector that would preclude uh, trying to live into what you're saying, in in my view, and in my experience now uh, of 11 years of being an Anglican bishop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it might not be precisely intuitive, and maybe that's what I was trying to get us to talk about here, is that we might, it might feel counterintuitive to um, a lot of Anglicans, but if we can get past that moment of it being counterintuitive, I think we can live into it. JR, what kind of questions do we have? Uh, we've got some good ones. Uh, I'm going to start off with a, with a doozy just to get us going. Okay. Uh, so here's a question. What if Jamie Dimon, that's the president of, uh, JP Morgan. I didn't know who that was. The head of Chase bank, I think. What if Jamie comes to faith in your church? What if president Biden, there's some assumption in that question. What if President Biden starts calling Fitch for advice? Suddenly his church wields worldly power. What is he going to do with it? Isn't this the question that the church has been trying to figure out? Is the Anabaptist vision a cop-out? Thanks for that. Uh, thanks, thanks for giving me uh, no problem, David. to answer a 50,000 word question. I'll just say this, if uh, Joe Biden got elected president and he was a member of my church, um, and I'm not going to judge whether he's saved or not. He certainly has uh, devout Catholic faith, but let's just say he got saved. He'd probably be a one-term president. <laughs> In other words, he would, he would disrupt the power and, of empire in the United States so much that he might, get, might not get out alive. Uh, same for Jamie Dimon, uh, you know, uh, but that's not up for me to figure out. That's up for uh, Jesus to transform and sanctify and renew the world. Uh, there's been 
down through history, many powerful pig figures who've got saved uh, and, and sold everything they had and gave to the poor. Then there's been people who said they got saved and started killing people. I mean, I don't want to bring up any names, but Constantine comes to mind. So actually, Constantine supposedly didn't get baptized until he was on his deathbed. So anyways, this is a complicated question. I can't give one answer, um, but I do think it's possible, and I do think it's amazingly possible for God through Jesus to change the world through people like Jamie Dimon and Joe Biden, but it will probably be very disruptive to the structures of worldly power. So David, maybe that was uh, just a fun, pithy way of asking. Maybe there's a more generic way of asking it. When um, spirit power, as you've been articulating it, begins in any way, in any circumstance, for whatever you know, given reason, begins to rub up with forms of worldly power, you know, whether it's a local school board or big time CEO or whatever, how, how do we comport ourselves when we have to or have, um, um, you know, by happenstance, in, are engaging with worldly power? Um, I think, uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you mean, but when you say comport yourself. Well, I think um, what that question was trying to get at is, is Anabaptism a cop-out, meaning like just sort of don't have anything to do with worldly power. So, you know, if we're going to be present to our community, that, in, that community includes various sorm, forms of worldly power. Yeah. How are we yeah. faithfully present to worldly power? Yeah. Um, so, uh, if you listen to Martin Luther, uh, he said there was a right hand and a left hand. And when you were, when you were dealing with your own personal spirituality in Jesus, uh, that was the work of the spirit. When you were dealing with the world, you were dealing with the sword. And, and so Luther was basically teaching us how to be schizophrenics. I think we ought to say, no, thank you to Luther. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, well, Jamie uh, K. Smith, uses Augustine and the two cities approach and says the two cities are are working alongside one another but they but we're not called to live in the city of God and the city of man together we're in the city of God and there will be times when it conflicts with the city of man and other times when it doesn't uh, but there's this overlap for for Jamie for an Anabaptist, uh, we can't tell what God's doing ahead of time. We must engage and be present to the person or the institution or the place at work. And we must look for other, say, Christians, maybe one or two other Christians, to pray and discern what God is doing and be sensitive, be tending to what the Spirit is doing. And uh, we will be surprised at what God does, but we can't anticipate into the future. I don't think in any way um, what I'm saying about the two powers at work and that we uh, as Christians are tending to what God's doing through his presence, in any way does that uh, extract us out of the world or remove us from worldly power. It's just a very uh, patient way of engaging it and refusing to enter the world on the world's terms or or participate on the world's terms. And I think that's very disruptive. Good, thanks. Um, let me ask two questions side by side here that both kind of have to do with the idea of mutuality. 
uh, and this will be good for you to like lean into some maybe some practical examples from your experience. The first one was uh, how do you engage in mutuality without meetings being taken over by the strongest voices? And a second question sort of akin to it, when we're seeking to discern in mutuality, how should we as leaders handle it when we end up with someone from our leadership team who's operating from worldly values rather than being led by the spirit um, and who can't mm -hmm. seem to be brought around? Yeah, I mean like, okay, so, so I view the table, I view sitting around a table. You Anglicans know a little bit about sitting around a table and submitting one to another and most importantly submitting to the presence of christ at the table submitting one to another so for instance a couple of different places we are told that before we go to the table to reconcile one with another submit one to another and so even me sitting around now i i know this theology needs to be explained especially for sean mccain if I have to explain it one more time to that guy, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my mind. Okay, that was a little bit of a joke, Jr. You're not even listening to me because you didn't laugh. Anyways, uh, but I believe the presence of Christ is at the table, and we learn how to talk to one another. It takes a certain leadership. It says so when when we meet at our table on Sunday evenings, everybody knows there's a little like guideline. We listen to one another. We tend to one another. If one usurps another person or starts talking too much about themselves, we have a way of saying, George, you've got a question for Miss Judy across the table. And, and we, we tend to, we learn how to trust one another, but it takes time and it takes practice. I would say that's the same thing that happens around mutuality of leadership. And of course there are people and I can give you many examples just in this church that I'm at right now in the last seven years when uh, certain people refused to participate and through mutual discernment, it was just discerned. Maybe it's not, you're not ready for leadership. Maybe you're not ready to be part of here. Maybe you're not ready to make the commitment of mutuality. These are conversations that shape a mutuality that I tell you can change the world, as opposed to just me popping off as senior pastor dude or senior priest or whatever you call yourselves and say, hey, I said this, now what's your problem? Follow me. We enter into a mutuality where God works among us to, to coalesce a vision and an understanding of what he's doing from all this place, not just me thinking it up in my head and telling everybody, I think this is what we should do. I believe it's really important work. Uh, so would you, would you, in that scenario then, would you say that one of the postures that, let's say you occupy a senior, a title, you know, you like within the life of a church or an organization or something like that, that seems like what you'd have to be willing to do at that point is to say, like, how is, how is it not at the end of the day, a democracy? Like, I know you want it to be a pneumatocracy. Right. But at the end of the day, it seems like your posture as as a senior leader, if you're in that position, would have to be like so deferential. Like that if if the majority of the people were discerning something different than what you were submitting. You'd have to be willing to lay it down then. Right. I would I would put it this way. Um, 
G, you know, Jesus was the head of the table and he, uh, that's, that's when he went into that in Luke 24, he goes into that thing about, you know, the, you know, the thing I'd mentioned in the video about, uh, we want power. We want the right hand. We want the left hand. And he's at the table and he says, look, folks, this is the kingdom as the father's conferred on me. So I confer on you a kingdom. He points to the table and then he starts to show how we got to mutually submit to one another. And I think the first thing he did, depending on the Johannine account and how it fits with the others is he washes the disciples feet. And I've always said that's the principle of the person in power, or I'll say it this way, the person in perceived power mm -hmm. always goes first in submitting to the other. It opens space for the other now to say what he or she needs to say and other people's gifts to flourish. The person in power always goes first. By the way, if you look at Paul, I once did a New Testament study. This is like so long ago, I don't even know if I could find it, where I looked at all the ways Paul refused to call himself the senior leader. He always called, he always said, I'm co-leading or my co-laborer, or uh, if I were there present to you, I would do this. I want to be, uh, I don't want to over, I don't want to uh, exert power over you. I want to be with you. All the times Paul did that, and he was an apostle. And I just think this is the way we got to go, folks. And, and it will lead the church out into other places once we do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me try this one on. Uh, how, how in your mind is sowing the seeds of gospel revolution on the hard soil of Christendom uh, and anti-Christendom? I'm not entirely sure what that might mean different than sowing the seeds of gospel revolution in the first century. All right, I found, I found that a little hard to follow, but I think what the question was, was how does post-Christendom today differ from pre-Christendom in the early church? Is that what we're talking about? Uh, that could be. All right, well, I, I think I'll just say one thing, and it's so obvious. I, I'm in a call with uh, Quebec City, uh, First Alliance Church, Quebec City, where we have an exchange between our church and their church. And uh, in, in Quebec, as you know, the Roman Catholic Church got very powerful, very power hungry, and got dumped. And, and now everybody hates the Catholic Church, so much so that the swear words, in, in, in America, the swear words are sexual. In, in Quebec, the swear words are from the liturgy. That's how much they hate the church. And, and this on much less degree, uh, a lot of United States, not all, but actually it's getting worse. It's getting worse for evangelicals like myself. Uh, there is a grotesque resentment towards all things church. There is a grotesque uh, reaction against the witness of say, for please don't take me wrong, white evangelicalism, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in the pre-Christendom period, uh, they had open, it was, it was much more open and extended into a less hostile. And actually people were going, who is this? And what is this thing called Christianity? And man, these people are weird. What's going on here? It's, we don't want anything to do. That's why it's so important for presence and witness of our lives as somebody different again. Uh, I think that's a lot to, a, that's a big challenge for mission in North America, maybe bigger than say Islam countries. It's, it's, it's almost that intense. I don't know how you all feel about that. 
and, and I haven't been present in an Islamic country in a long time, but it just feels so oppressive in our current culture. Yeah. Okay. Uh, here's another one. Uh, how can we help diffuse fear in those in our communities and churches who are used to having power and sense that they're losing it? For example, I sense this particularly with some of my older white congregants. So I, that question is probably coming from a particular place, maybe of like generational issues, but I wonder if you could even extend it to just the whole idea of like, you've had to do this in different churches now, right? And so for those who have been reared in church traditions where the uh, style of leadership that you're advocating for isn't innate, like what have been effective means of helping aside from we've heard you talk about coming around the table but like uh and of course that's got to remain central but like what are some of the ways that you've helped see people come I, along i have this book the church of us versus them where i give like five tactics at the end you don't even have to buy the book just uh just have jr pdf that one page out of it uh but uh one of the tactics you never sent me that book ouch sore spot for me uh that was a complete oversight my <laughs> friend um but anyways uh you know uh i have a 15 year old i know you're looking at me going and, and the light's not really good right now so i actually look older than i actually look in real life but even then i look old okay <laughs> but anyways i have a 15 year old and uh he's at He's, at, he's playing on the high school golf team, so he's not here, so he can't hear me. But a lot of the things that he's confronting, let's say with sexuality, gender, and everything else going on in the school, it's scary. It's freaking me out sometimes. And somehow I got to cool down and be present with my son. But I think the first thing you all need to do is just sympathize with these people. My goodness, it's scary. It's, uh, it, it's, for a lot of us, it's our kids we're talking about. And so agree with them and say, man, these are scary times. And then, and then what, what I always do, and sometimes on a couple of fundraising trips for Northern Seminary, when, when, they're, when I'm dealing with older people who have money, older white people, and they're feeling defensive, I go, I, I, I say, do, do we want our, do we want our kids to become Muslims? I, sorry, I'm, some some white older white christians are anti-muslim anti this anti that is that where we want to go and then we realize what's going on in our kids and then we got a common thing to work for we want to see our kids grow to know christ and his kingdom and the power of his resurrection which by the way is not worldly power but first we have to find that moment that place of agreement usually comes over a cup of coffee, or if you're Anglican, maybe a beer, you drink, or maybe a fine wine. We don't do that in my denomination. But, you know, those are the things we have to do. Uh, and it's patient work, and it's worthy work uh, to lead our people into the future. Uh, let's see, uh, however, you, depending on how you want to address this, this might be one of our last questions, but um, this just came in, and I think it's really worth our time. Uh, how 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 can mutuality and leadership uh, be an opportunity for women's voices to be heard 
uh, while submitting to an, uh, an all-male episcopacy and sometimes an all-male priesthood. Um, are you trying to, are you asking me how to solve your problem here again? Because, <laughs> okay, I just want to say, all of us coming out of Christendom, uh, you know what happens when power gets put into hierarchy? Don't be offended, but hierarchical power turns often into patriarchal power and the men take charge. And by the way, this is the antithesis of mission. It's Christendom. And we should apologize to all women uh, who have been excluded because of that, because folks, it's such a revolution going on in the New Testament when it comes to men and women together in leadership. All I can say is, if we're gonna engage again in, in and reach out again. We need women to be women and men to be men. And we need to be together in leadership and we've got to find a way or else we're going to be stuck in these structures that preserve and don't engage. And if you want a paper on this, on how the New Testament, uh, it's, you know, um, one more thing. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he took the existing structure, which was women submit to men. And then he says, uh, so he heads it up by saying, submit yourselves one to another, Ephesians 5, 20, I think it is. And then he starts into all the structures and shows and, and, and has like a radical mutual submission. Women submit to your husband, but men die for your wives. He does the same thing with masters and slaves, children and and parents. And so start with where you're at and mutualize it. And you will see the, the presence of the Holy Spirit bust out. Um, but, but that's probably something you're all going to have to figure out piece by piece in much conversation, discerning what God's doing by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 15, it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit that we go this direction. Uh, so apologies uh, to those of you who have submitted and are still yet submitting questions for Dave to address. Uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do is, uh, that's Dave's cell phone number uh, in the chat. So you can feel free to call him uh, and text him uh, more questions if you've got them. Uh, he'll be glad. to. He's very accessible. <laughs> he loves talking to people. Uh, Dave, we're really thankful for your time and for your voice. You always come in and lovingly provoke uh, and prod our thoughts along in these areas. So thanks for doing that. May the Lord bless and flourish for the kingdom uh, at Anglican Church, North America. Yeah, thanks. So Bishop Todd, uh, over to you. Well, it's about a quarter to the hour. And so our goal in these next 15 minutes, it may go a minute or two over. Um, is for me to just say some sort of recap sorts of things. And what I'm really looking forward to is in the last few minutes to actually pray for you guys. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Fitch, you're, will, you're happy, happy for you to stay, but uh, you don't have to stay if you're, if you're busy. 
So I've been listening to these uh, talks as I always do. And I, as I said, when we began, I always learn so much. It's why I love uh, coming to this. Um, but I've been listening with a kind of peculiar ear, or particular ear, I should say, wondering what is it that the Holy Spirit has been saying to us these last 48 hours? So I think at least one thread I see that um, began with Esau, is just the notion that leadership is difficult and demanding and that it calls for self-sacrifice. I think it was early on in the pandemic when it was either something Andy Crouch wrote or it was a podcast I was listening to, or I, I think maybe it was a podcast I was listening to where Andy said that when he realized uh, what the pandemic was really gonna be, that he began to just weep because he realized all the things I love, all, anybody on this phone who's a pastor or works in a local church will understand this. He said, all the things I love being with people and like, you know, in Andy's case in conferences and stuff and talking about things that we find mutually important. I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to do them again. I don't know whenever I'm ever going to be around the country again to see old friends and that sort of thing. And so I think this call that we've heard of don't quit. Remember Esau saying just, yes, I know it's hard and, and especially in the race relation things, but just don't quit. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, last week, I think I saw a study by Tom Rayner, and I don't remember now if it was his study or if he was quoting somebody else like Lily or Pew or somebody, uh, but the study said that right this moment, six out of 10 pastors would quit if they could. And he said that he knows from his interviews that many of them are already planning to do so. Now, he doesn't mean they're being deceitful. He just means they're they're thinking, what could I do for a living? Can I be bivocational? Should I just go back into business? Um, and so I think this thing that we've been hearing from our speakers of, you know, just don't miss out on what God's doing in this crazy time. It's so easy to see what's broken and hurtful and wrong. And of course, we could name lots of things that are deeply painful. But um, learning to notice what God's doing in this time. I hadn't thought of this till just now, but we maybe could all do a, a, a SWOT, you know, uh, analysis. Uh, what are our strengths and weaknesses uh, relative to this time? And then the last part, what are the opportunities and threats? And we easily see the threats, but maybe we could wonder about what are the opportunities. I think Esau's uh, talk about the collision of narratives and the disorientation and alienation we all feel is right. And I just don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. And we're going to have to find a way to learn it, to live into it. It's, it's one of those things that's difficult and demanding right now. I thought that Esau's uh, thought uh, about the black church, at the historic black church in America, as a source of orthodox social justice is something that I hope you all will take away uh, with you. That, uh, remember Esau's point was that um, modern evangelicals and fundamentalists have thought that social justice is a liberal thing because it happened to come out of what we now call the liberal church who was simultaneously deconstructing orthodox theology while engaging in social justice issues. So then social justice got sort of, you know, pinned on uh, what we might call the left. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Tim Keller recently uh, wrote an article on the difference between biblical and uh, um, secular justice. And Dave Fitch uh, responded to it in Christianity Today. So I think uh, Ryan will put those links up for us if you want to run that down some more.
And then I guess uh, as I was listening to Esau, um, as anybody who's in C4SO, and I, I know lots of you aren't, um, but anybody in C4SO will have heard me say a hundred times that as always, we want to reframe things around Jesus and his kingdom because it's Jesus and his articulation of the kingdom that critiques all political approaches, all political vantage points and that sort of thing. And then I hope we would all take away from Esau's talk that our tradition, the Anglican tradition, is full of notions of biblical justice. Uh, uh, I think Ryan will put up here for you a couple of books that John Stott, for instance, um, arguably the you know, leading Anglican thinker of the 20th century. Um, uh, certainly if you think of Lausanne and all that he did around the world, um, you can see that John was thinking and writing about these things 40, 50, 60 years ago. Of course, you could go back even farther and think of Wilberforce, and then just think of those seven or eight uh, colleagues from the Book of Common Prayer that Esau read to us. So I just want you to take away kind of a confidence that our own tradition um, has places in which we can stand and appeal to. Then in terms of leadership being hard and all that, we, we heard similar things from Ashley, that qualities of mind and heart are key to missional leadership, you know, our posture, our nonverbal face, faith, sorry, face, um, uh, the humility we talked about this morning, uh, the non-anxious grasping that just ends, ends up using people. And when we do that, we're sort of back to Fitch or, uh, as I said, my book on servant leadership. When we're anxiously grasping, that means we're using people. And it makes sharing power, it makes mutuality, and it makes servant leadership like literally impossible. And then I took away from Ashley the whole notion of seeking affirmation and validation of pretending or being defensive or posturing or, you know, pride, fear, and insecurity, uh, amassing or hoarding power, you know, all those things we talked about this morning. It just hit me an obvious thing. Those things are just not attractive. So Jesus was 100%, you know, like pure and holy yet was um, attractive to sinners. And so I just think there's something very missional in what Ashley was talking about, this notion of uh, what is our face towards the world, our stance, our posture towards the world um, is really important. That if you think of Jesus' words, his teaching, his works, his deeds of power, we also need to think of his manner of being in the world. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the way in which he conducted himself in the world, which was at, uh, absent of all those things like pretending and posturing and pride and fear and insecurity and all that is a part of what made him and his community um, attractive, not in a cheesy way, attractive. Think of it like if that word attractive to you is messed up by church growth stuff, maybe think of it this way, that the, the feel of Jesus and his first friends and the early community provided a plausibility structure for faith. Think of it that way. And that had they been pretending, posturing, uh, operating out of fear, grasping anxiously, um, the plausibility structure would have actually been torn down rather than facilitated. And we just heard David, so I don't think I, I need to, to say a lot there other than maybe underscore what I said, that I would want us to go away from this confident that there's nothing inherent in our ecclesiology. There's nothing inherent in our canons 
that would keep us from seeking the mind of the spirit together. I don't mean in any way to lift myself up as somebody perfect. I'm absolutely not. But I could just put my hand on my heart and tell you that I can't remember the last decision I made uh, that I didn't, you know, about something about my leadership. Uh, obviously, I make decisions about my own thoughts in my books and stuff, that those are my own thoughts. But when it comes to anything I'm leading, my foundation, C4SO, the Telos Collective, uh, I can't remember the last time I made a significant decision without, I always say, borrowing the minds of others. It's just native to me that like, if I borrow some of JR's brain, I don't lose myself. I don't lose my own mind. I gain another mind. And, and it's just native to me. I never feel like I'm losing my power when I ask somebody else what they think, even if their thoughts critique um, and therefore, you know, shape what I'm thinking. It actually uh, frequently happens. So I just want us to be confident that we can live into this stuff um, as Anglicans. All right. So the last thing I want to do um, is tie this together by talking about how missional leadership ties in with the other core values of the Telos Collective, kingdom, culture, missional ecclesiology, God's empowering presence and formation. So I need to do this quickly. Um, if, if you end up wanting the, the words of this, um, JR could get it to you later. So the first thing I wanna to do to talk about how the kingdom impacts missional leadership is to say this, that all acts of leadership emerge within like a definition or a scope of work. And so for us, missional leadership is occasioned by and defined by the kingdom of God. So in missional leadership, we're trying to align ourselves and the people and activities of our church to the kingdom of God. And so this means that missional leadership never starts with itself or with the church. They both get included in the starting point of the ruling and reigning of God. So whatever missional leadership is, it arises from and tries to bring alignment to the kingdom of God. In terms of culture, the reason we talk about culture in the Telos Collective is that every act of leadership happens within a context. You know, a moment in time, it occurs among named persons and in a named place. There's no such thing as decontextualized leadership. So quality leadership recognizes this and factors it in by listening to its context. Uh, with David, we were talking about listening to each other. Well, listening to our context is simply another way of listening. So listening to and observing one's context is not the road to compromise. I would say that's the path to effective, peaceful, um, and effective leadership. So in terms of how missional leadership and missional ecclesiology works together, the focus of missional leadership in a congregation, I think, can be summed up in the word alignment that a missional leadership, again, is seeking to bring the vision, the values, the goals, the objectives, the plans, the programs, the staffing, the volunteers, the budget. A missional leader is trying to bring all that into alignment with being the sent people of God so that we're giving the church a sense for her sentness. And then in terms of the Holy Spirit, David talked about it a lot. We, uh, I think others have as well. But I would just want to say uh, this in my own words that leadership tests human beings to the core. Leadership is a great cause of fear and anxiety and depression. It tempts leaders to multiple forms of sin. In the scriptures, the antidote to these common difficulties is presence. It's the notion that we're constantly companioned along the way. 
So when the early Old Testament leaders like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, we, could, we could name the great women of the Old Testament and the apostles, but when people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses especially, when they heard that they were called and they noticed their first leadership fears, they were encouraged by God with the words, I will be with you. Uh, when you get to the end of the, the, the Gospels and the apostles are very concerned that Jesus is saying he's going to leave them, they, of course, say, you know, don't leave us. And Jesus says, don't worry, I won't abandon you. I will send you another comforter to be with you, the paraclete, the continuing presence of Jesus in the disciples. So learning to abide in the presence of the Spirit, that's the indispensable role of the Spirit in the deep challenges of missional leadership. I actually don't think you can do missional leadership without a really, really genuine, robust relationship with the third person of the Holy Trinity. And then lastly, formation. How does this impact uh, missional leadership? Well, the interior of a leader, our heart, in the words of Jesus, is the source of our words and our deeds and our decisions of leadership. And over the long haul, no leader can contradict their heart, their soul, or their will. These heart, soul, will must be bent in the direction of Christ-likeness, or they'll be twisted by the various temptations of ministry. So in my view, who a leader is matters far more than what they do. And all you'd have to do is ask somebody who's been mistreated by a successful leader, and they can tell you that who a leader is is way more important than what they do. So two last sending thoughts. Missional leadership means thinking like a missionary. I've been involved in church planning my whole life, you know, going on 40 years or actually more than 40 years now, 42, 43 years. Uh, I've been around proper uh, missionaries. I've, um, of course, been around church planners my whole life. And the one thing I'm aware of is that missional leaders think like missionaries. So they're aware of their tradition, but always their passionate first priority is for their mission field. And then, as I've said, I just want to underscore especially in this crazy days we're living in, to trust the Holy Spirit, to trust his creativity, and to release your people. And in the process of trusting him and, and being confident in the spirit in your people, releasing them, obviously, in thoughtful ways, I think that process will lead us to a new normal um, with new sorts of leaders in this crazy day that we're in. So with that... Can you find a way to just change your posture, uh, whatever posture you're in? Um, maybe put your feet flat on the floor. Maybe you might want to lift your hands. You might want to shut off your video if it's, uh, um, you know, uh, that's a little too intimate for you. And I just want you to um, receive now um, prayer for yourself. Now may the refreshing of the Holy Spirit be upon you. And where you have emotional and spiritual fatigue, may the, stir, may the Spirit be stirred up within you.
strengthening you where you're weak, healing you where you feel broken by despair. May the Lord stir up in you those first moments when you knew you were called, when you first discovered your primary gift, when you first fell in love with a place or a people. May the Lord stir that up in you such that you'd find a new joy, a new hope, a new peace. As we go, may God fill you with his power. May you be aware that you are always companioned along the way by ultimate power and that interacting with ultimate power, you never need to anxiously seize it but rather working with ultimate power, you can not only have it, but share it. And as you maybe sense your first calling again this afternoon, may you sense that um, sense of authorization you had when you felt like the Spirit was authorizing you, that He was sending you, and that you were deputized to be an ambassador of the kingdom, uh, a voice for God, his hands and um, injustice and hospitality and generosity and benevolence, caring for the other. As the Lord stirs up your gifts, may you become the kind of person who stirs up the gifts in others. And may God restore to you today any confidence you've lost in the last six months. May he give you confidence to be a creative, missional leader. Now I bless you with the blessing God gave to Moses and Aaron with which to bless the people of God. May the Lord bless you. May he cause you to prosper richly this afternoon in every good spiritual gift there is in Christ Jesus. And may the Lord keep you. May he watch over and guard and protect you and all whom you love. May his countenance be upon you, his face turned towards you, such that you would see in Jesus how very much he loves you, how he accepts you right where you are, and invites you to follow him. And may the Lord be gracious unto you. May you sense his favor and mercy and goodness as you walk with him. And may the Lord grant you peace. May you be at rest and centered in Christ Jesus, who is our Lord, and through whom we ask all these things. Amen. <laughs>